When are we gonna talk about it? When are we gonna come together and clean up what we like? Do you wanna talk about it? Welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. He also taught me how to fish and a whole bunch of other things. But mind you, those good experiences, those good memories are all daytime memories. There's some days that were really good days and you have fun with that person and then they apologize and nothing happens for two weeks and they said that they were sorry and you think that everything's going to be okay and then it happens again. My guest today is Shelly Edwards Jorgensen. I reached out to Shelly after reading an advanced copy of her memoir, Beautiful Ashes. The ashes refer to Shelley's father murdering her mother when Shelley was 15 and burning their house down. But the ashes are also what Shelley rose from in her journey to healing. I was really glad for the opportunity to talk with Shelley about all of this and also to share this conversation with you. Beautiful Ashes can be pre-ordered on Shelley's website, which is beautifulashesmemoir.com. Welcome, Shelley. It's been an eight-year process to get the book to where it's at. I mean, part of it, I don't think I was done with the journey that I had to finish um, to get to the, the right ending. But the other part of it was just, I literally had to go back to therapy to get, um, to be able to articulate my feelings because the, the one thing that I did was numb. And um, so I literally sat in my therapist's office to do the first draft of the book. And um, she had my laptop on her, on, her, on her desk and we would write it together. And she would interview me and basically you know, ask me, we would just dissect all the different um, emotions and the trauma. And, you know, so I could, so I could articulate to the readers what I was feeling, because that's, that's where the value is in the story. I, you know, like I said yesterday, I'm an engineer. So, you know, I write, I write in bullet points, right? So I'm, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. Well, I, I can I can see that some of these things is, are really digging deep and the insights are so valuable and that could only come from really, you know, contemplating or as you said, the therapist actually having the laptop on her knees. But maybe what we'll do is um, I thought I thought I could just go through the book a little bit on things that I underlined and just talk about them if that's OK. That would be amazing. So. One of the things is where you talk about what altered your world when you say, I was almost always frightened I'd be in worse trouble for telling the truth. So can you talk about the silence of your childhood, secrets and silence? Yep. And that was, that was the, the pattern from, I learned that 
And, and that story of being four years old is people think that children aren't aware of what's going on, even if they right. don't see the violence happening. Well, in this particular case, my mom showed up with a black eye and I knew she was lying about it. And I don't know how I knew. I think I knew because I had already witnessed so many events, but it was like my whole world altered at that point because then all of a sudden, if my mom is afraid enough that she's going to lie and the thing that she's telling, teaching me as a child is the worst thing you can do is be a liar, right? So there's, there's two messages there. Also in another part of the book where you talk about how you couldn't really, your mother wasn't going to keep you safe. That's a huge revelation. And that's right. Scary. Right. Well, that was the other, that was the other part of the, the revelation was that if she's in danger, I'm in danger. And so that's when I started living every day in fear. And that, and I think that's the one thing that people that have never experienced domestic violence don't understand is that even if there's not a toxic, abusive, violent action going on that moment, the the um, the expectation that it might is always there. Right. And so that's the fear that you constantly, it just nags at you constantly. Yeah. And, and sometimes it could just be a one violent, you know, physically violent outburst or even like, a woman will say, well, he never hit me. He punched the wall beside me or something that, that was very frightening. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be, it doesn't even have to be physical. And, and, and in a lot of ways, the things that were said were worse because the, the bruises and the, and the, you know, the, the physical trauma heals but that emotional trauma is really hard to put a Band-Aid on. And I think that's where people are missing the point is this long drawn out, drawn out emotional um, toxic environment really not only affects you emotionally, but in the long term, and science is starting to catch up with this, is that trauma has a direct link to physical illness later in life. It was a revelation to me and I just started saying it, which is that emotional um, abuse is physical abuse because there is going to be a physical repercussion. Like I was hemorrhaging the last year that I was with my ex. I was actually hemorrhaging. And then I actually developed cervical cancer. Yeah, there's a good book about it. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. It is a good book. And I think we were going to have that as in our book club because it is, it's excellent. Yeah. And so, and also as a child, like the courts in Maine anyway, they don't recognize emotional abuse um, for children so that they will not, for instance, like, you know, give the child a protection of abuse order if there's no physical abuse. And also they won't intervene if you can't prove for the child's safety, if you can't prove the child wasn't physically abused. So what, what do you have to say about that? Uh, well, in my day and age, there, there was nothing, <laughs> I mean, uh, CPS let us live with my dad for two and a half years while he was waiting trial. <laughs> so tell so, me about that. Talk about that. So after my mom died, things got worse <laughs> for my sister and I because, um, 
because my dad, um, he wasn't arrested right away. He, he, again, how they didn't arrest him right away is mind blowing because just let me back up for a minute. The night of the fire, they knew it was arson. Okay. So on the 11 o'clock news, here's my house in, in a blaze on the, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, all the major news networks in Detroit. And they're announcing that it's a suspicious fire and a 50 year old dead woman. Okay, so um, how did anybody ever deem her death natural causes? They were questioning you and you weren't letting them know at first what you knew, correct? Right, well, the, the day after the, well, here's the dichotomy, right? Is I just lost my mom, my home, all my worldly possessions. I don't have any details of the facts. All I know is my history. And I and I love my dad. Okay. I hate his violence and his temper and everything, but I loved my dad. And so now I'm I'm being questioned at the police department. Well, we talked earlier about secrets. Well, now I'm 15. I'm pretty damn good at keeping the family secret of abuse secret. I've had enough morning after breakfasts where I didn't speak up about what happened the night before to, to know that I was trained by my mother not to, not to speak about my feelings, about how I was scared, about what happened the night before. It was like, these outbursts would happen. And then the next day would be like nothing happened in a beautiful family breakfast. And, um, and so when I was at the police station, the very day after the fire, um, the police were questioning me. Well, my dad's attorney was in the, in the room with me. So how am I supposed to answer honestly, when I've been keeping this secret my whole life and there, and so you know, I answered their questions, but they weren't asking the right questions. Right. But the, 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 the thing, the thing about this case that is so bizarre is that after my, my mom's mom, my grandmother on my mom's side and my, my mom's sister, my aunt Kathy, um, and some of her girlfriends started writing letters to the judge and the prosecution about the history of abuse the police never came back and, and, and talked to my sister or I, ever. The first time I talked to the police again after, I, I, we did have a deposition like a year and a half later for like um, insurance purposes, but that was a deposition. It wasn't a police in, investigating the crime. And um, the, the next time I talked to anybody about any details about the crime, was two and a half years later when I'm being prepped to, to testify for the prosecution at my dad's trial. I, I think for sure it would have been, um, it would have been helpful if they would have had more information from me and more information from my sister. But here's, here's the really um, sad thing about the whole state of affairs with the judicial system and domestic violence is, I, I had to sit on the stand for an entire day. 
I have, I went to the courthouse and picked up my testimony. I have a hundred pages of testimony. Okay. And, um, I, uh, I was petrified. They made the, they made the jury leave. They, they, they brought the jury back. They thought leave, making the jury leave would make it more comfortable for me. Well, I was 17 years old. I know that with every breath and every sentence I'm uttering, I'm like putting a nail in my dad's coffin for first degree murder. Was your father and, in the courtroom? Yes. So he's there looking at you. So he's staring at me, right. glaring, glaring at me from across the room. I'm sitting there, you know, crumpling up this, this Kleenex to shreds in my lap, a basket case, the crying, the judge is yelling at me because I'm not speaking up loud enough. Oh my goodness. The judge was <laughs> yelling at you? Yes. <laughs> and, um, and instructed the prosecutor to get me a drink of water so maybe I could speak up better. And, and then um, had no regard that I was going home to spend the night with him that night. Are you kidding me? No, spend the night with him. I, I didn't. Yeah. I read, read that, but I just, I guess I forgot it. Oh my god! And so, did, did anybody intervene to say this is not a safe place for you to be? This guy's a killer. He's on charge for. He's in. He's he's in, in trial for murder. No, no. And so, so literally, I risking my life by by corroborating these stories that I only found out two days ahead. I this was a Monday. I found out on Saturday all this evidence that I didn't know for two and a half years that confirmed his guilt when the yeah. whole two and a half years I had been trying to deny what my gut was telling me. But then when the prosecutor laid out all the facts in front of me, I couldn't help but know that my gut was right the whole time. And now I'm staying with the guy. I'm, I'm literally um, telling them about the first time that he threatened to murder us all and, and burn the house down, which was one of his go-to phrases, right? Well, I was six years old. Okay, so I'm recanting this story in court, scared to death. Yes, I was six years old. It was the summer of 1976. We had a brown Mustang that my mom pushed out of the garage and we fled the scene, okay? I remember it vividly. Well, do you know that because I didn't remember that it was July 19th, 1976, the judge threw out my testimony? Your whole testimony? Yes. Your whole testimony? All the testimony about all the past experiences. The judge threw it out? So, so his lawyer argued that and the judge accepted it? Yeah, I, they had a, I didn't know this until a couple of years ago when I was researching the case more in depth because, you know, I was a minor at the time. So I went to the courthouse, there's 4,000 pages of microfiche to go through. And so, and it's a dollar a page to print them. Wow. <laughs> so, so I was investigating the whole thing and I didn't know until I was literally reading the transcript. They had a sidebar um, during one of the breaks during the, tr when they were um, bringing the jury back in, when the judge agreed to not let the jury hear any of the testimony that I gave because I didn't have the exact dates. Wow. Now, I bet you, you might not even remember the exact date of half the things that That's happened insane. to you. That's insane. Did your sister corroborate that, uh, that, that, your, that your father had said that he would burn the house down? Well, here's the thing. They didn't ask her. 
They didn't? No. They had my sister testify for the defense. My sister um, was only on the stand for her. Her testimony is very short. It was very um, just matter of fact about the events that happened that day. But see, I was the last one home. So but, but, but would your sister also have refused to cooperate with the prosecution, do you think? I don't think she would have refused. Well, first of all, I love my dad. My sister hates my dad. This is the why behind that. My sister's two years older than me. And she, from probably at four or five years old, started physically intervening with my parents' fights and becoming my mother's confidant. So she was my mother's best friend. So when my sister yells out, um, when the police tells her, tells us that my mom is dead and she yells out in the book, how am I supposed to graduate? That was a real emotion for her because my sister and I both have dyslexia, but it affected her more than it affected me. And my mom was her biggest supporter. So if I was my dad's pet, Lisa was my mom's pet. They were like best friends. And she, she definitely would have testified, but against him for sure. I think she wanted to kill him some several times. But, um, but after my mom died, my dad really became venomous towards my sister. And I literally had to stop him from killing her one time. Oh well, he's still out and in, in and, and around you both, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he um, could have, I mean, he's a killer. He could have, he could have killed her. Oh yeah. And there's stories, Patricia, that, that aren't even in the book that there's so many things going on in that time period that are crazy that aren't in the book. I'll give you one story. Um, Lisa, uh, well, I'll give you, I'll give you two stories for the price of one. <laughs> when, um, uh, this, the summer after the fire, my dad, um, we, we moved up north to our cottage because the house that we were renting in sold. And this and is your that, father and your sisters in your sister. Yeah. My mom, my dad and my sister and I moved Which up. Which is north. crazy. He's, I can't even believe that he's, not, he's, he's facing charges of murder and he's actually has custody of the two of you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, that summer, I mean, my sister and I were doing everything at that point in our lives to, to not go home because every day he was drunk. So we were doing everything we could to not go home. Well, that summer he, he went up north to the cottage and Lisa and I floated back and forth from friends I just and grandma. Say that, I just want to say that we have a woman that we're talking to who he's, he's been very violent with her, her ex and now he's trying to get her to go on vacation with him out of the country and it's so dangerous. But this is what this reminds me of when you're talking about like an isolated cottage up north. Like, I don't think so. Like, that's like the worst, worst thing you could do. Oh, that's where most of the terror took place my whole life is at the cottage up north. Oh, because it was isolated. Yeah, well, and drinking happened on at the cottage. Oh. And so um, we, we basically would go back and forth. And um, during that summer, my dad started going out to all these bars and meeting all these people. Well, in the fall, school was starting and um, we didn't we didn't have a house to live in because the house was burned down, still not renovated. The rental house that we um, were living in temporarily had sold. 
So my dad buys, we're waiting for a condo to be built. So my dad buys a fixer upper and then invites three men and the one guy's son to live with us to renovate the house. Wait, how old were Uh, you? I was a teenager. Yeah. And so he's inviting these stranger men that he met at the bar to move into our house so that they could reconstruct um, the burndown house. So, so we got that going on. So fast forward a few months, they, um, they finished the burned out, burned down house renovation. They've fleeced my dad for thousands of dollars because he's drunk and high all the time and they're stealing money left and right. And so my dad decides to host a party for my sister's 19th birthday at the house. So he puts a chair in the living room in the exact same location where the blood stain was. Wait, do you mean in the cottage or do you mean in the house that burned down? In the house that burned down. So it's still open? People can still walk in it? Well, it just got finished being renovated because these guys oh, moved in. I with see. Us. Sorry. I thought you said that they w- moved into the cottage. They moved into the house to fix the house that had burned down. Yes. And so he's going to have a 19th birthday for your sister in the house where he ki- killed your mother and burned the house down. Yeah. If your sister and your mother were very, very close, how would you describe your relationship with your mother? Oh, I was very close too. I mean, my mom was, me and Lisa were my mom's entire world. My mom was a very smart woman. She was a very beautiful woman. She did modeling when she was younger. She, um, She had a bachelor's degree. So she was a very very successful person. She had a ton of friends everywhere we went. She had friends and, um, but my mom never missed any, anything that we were ever in. She was always, you know, driving one way of the carpool. I mean, everything, all my friends knew my mother. Did you think people knew what was going on? Nope. I think that, um, I think that, um, I think most people are clueless. Um, I think my my aunt and my grandma knew a few things. I think some very close friends of my mother mothers knew uh, a few things, but I think generally speaking, no one knew. Because I found out recently that um, somebody, one of my mom's really good friends, that um, we were very close to. And we spent holidays and just random days during the week visiting this friend because they lived in our neighborhood that, um, that her husband was just as abusive. And how did you find that out? Because her daughter told me when she started reading my book, here I am, you know, a so-called domestic violent expert because I live it, that I didn't even know that that was going on with with them you said that at, at one point you you and your sister asked your mother not or begged your mother not to leave him when you when could you talk about that yeah that's that I don't ever I looking back I don't understand it now um I I've tried to put it in perspective now you know I try to roll back the clock it was the 1980s late 70s early 80s when I was probably around 10 or 12. 
um, when my mom seriously started contemplating or at least talking to my sister and I about leaving. Can I ask you a couple of things? I wonder if one, A, it could be because you maybe sub unconsciously, subconsciously knew that things would get worse if she left or that, that then there's the other thing that it's like common wisdom, like, you know, they say about children, like, no matter how bad it is, like you, you, you don't want to break up your family. Like, do you think that this has something to do with any of the, either of those things? Or? Oh, I think it's a hundred percent. The second thing I didn't want to break up my family. I only had one friend that I knew was divorced and, um, and, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to break up my family. I, again, you know, so my sister and I would literally, after we would break up a fight, the three of us would retreat to the master bedroom. In the master bedroom, there was this green armchair with a little side table. And I, it was like, that was our go-to spot. Mom would sit in the green armchair and Lisa and I would sit on the floor. We'd all be crying because it was a, you know, a mess, you know, the scene. And, um, and, and she would say, well, girls, um, we could leave. I could get an apartment. We, you know, we lived in a, a beautiful custom home and, and had a pretty upscale suburban lifestyle. And so, um, uh, you know, we would, I remember saying, no, mom, you know, we will protect you. And then she would say, well, girls, one of these days, you aren't going to be here and he's going to kill me. And then that's what happened. Hello, I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, which is at findingourvoices.net. And you are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM and my conversation with Shelley Edwards Jorgensen, the author of Beautiful Ashes, which recounts her father murdering her mother and burning their house down when she was 15 and how in the world she healed from that. Now, back to my conversation with Shelley. I've come to the conclusion that that wasn't um, my responsibility. Exactly, exactly. In the fact that, even the fact of your mother talking about it with you as if, as if you're in on the decision-making on that, like you're, you're not, it's not to you. Right. And, and I just did this podcast with this man, Andy, who grew up in violence. And he said, you know, if he had one message for anybody, it would be, you know, it's not your responsibility to fix things. It's not your responsibility to make, keep your mother safe. It's your responsibility to survive. Did you feel a responsibility to protect her? Or was that Lisa's thing that Lisa did more? No, well, Lisa, Lisa did it more. Uh, but when I got old enough, I was just as involved as she was. And I felt just as responsible. That's why when my mom came home unexpectedly the night of the fire and my dad was sitting there drunk, that I, I, I quickly thought of a distraction because I thought, well, if I just dis distract them when they first, you know, it, maybe I can snuff out that spark that's going to cause that fight that I knew that was brewing. Yes. And you, you talk about quite a bit about how guilty you felt because you left them together and it was your role you felt to, to, to not have left them, to have been there and, and not have, right. And not have. Right. Together. Yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly how I felt. I felt for years that it was my fault for leaving. And my sister has felt for years that it was her fault 
that the fight was about her and that she didn't come home from basketball practice. Do you th- could you both look at it now and say, well, obviously the fault's all with him. Is that, is that possible to do now? For me, it is. Uh, Lisa hasn't had as much um, healing as I have in the whole process. So, so I think she's getting there, but it's, it's been a lot harder for her. Do you, have you, you and she talked a lot about what went on when you were children? I would love to, but she has a really hard time talking even still. Does she, does she defend her, her father to you or does she? Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) No, 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 no. Quite the opposite. (laughs) Yeah. And do you still talk about good memories of your father? Is that still a presence in your life as far as thinking some good things about him? Yep, I do. I, um, I, 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 I'm an engineer, like I said, by trade, but, um, I love architecture. Well, my dad loved architecture. He actually designed and built our home. And one of the things that we would do as a family, because my mom loved interior design and my dad loved architecture. I remember, uh, you know, on like Sunday afternoons, we would drive around and go to model homes just to look at them. And my dad would sketch out floor plans and stuff. Well, when I went to engineering school, I, uh, I worked for an architect. <laughs> and, um, and to this day, I, I, can, I can build anything. I mean, I, I've done every home improvement project you can think of. I've, uh, uh, I have more tools amassed than most men. Like all the guys that worked with me said that they were jealous. <laughs> and, uh, Um, And so all those skills I learned from my dad and I can't, you know, I can't deny that those have been positive things in my life. Well, on those drives, I mean, were there, were there truly relaxing moments or were you, were you literally always walking on eggshells or not? Well, you, you become accustomed to it. So um, it's like, there's, for me, at least there was these, you know how they have the codes for um, different levels of, of um, alerts, you know, like an orange alert or a red alert or a yellow alert? You know, it, it was kind of like that, is if there was no drinking going on, then the chances of a catastrophic, catastrophic event happening was low. So the risk was low. So on days where there wasn't drinking going on, you could relax a little bit more. But, um, but on days where there was drinking going on, all bets are off. And the thing is, is his alcoholism got progressively worse over time. And then as when he started working afternoons, he started drinking more. Did you, ever try to, did you ever try to prevent him from drinking when he was home? Do you remember ever trying to like get rid of the alcohol or? Oh yeah. I, I was like, right. He would be doing yard work and I literally, he would tell me to go get him a beer. And I, I don't know how he didn't beat the hell out of me because every single time I brought him a beer, I dumped out like a third of the beer on the way to, <laughs> to give it to him because it was always, you know, the can was always partially drained by the time I gave it to him. So, 
he never said anything and he never did anything, but I'm surprised because. Well, he would just get more, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, we, we would try to do things like that. And you mentioned one line I only remember seeing about, um, you mentioned your mother being plastered. Did she drink to cope with what was going on? She, my mom was a social drinker and she was also a social smoker, which also is what makes my dad's story about what happened that day suspicious. But um, what, what do you mean by that? Well, my dad's story of what happened uh, the night of the fire was that um, that my mom came home and was upset about um, what happened with my sister earlier in the day, AKA being arrested um, and uh, for being with some girls that shoplifted beer. So my dad said that she, when she came home, when he left to go to the store to get heating supplies, mind you, I had just left and he was drunk in his bathrobe in the kitchen. So his story is, is after I left, he left to go get heating supplies for the cottage. And my mom was smoking while reading the newspaper on the couch. And she had um, complained about um, heart chest pains the weekend before. So she must've had a heart attack. Oh, so the fact that she was a social smoker made no sense because she wouldn't be smoking by herself on the couch. Right. And you knew that, you knew that. as soon as you heard it, did you know that it wasn't true? Yes. Yes, definitely knew it wasn't true. But again, I have no proof. You had no proof. And also was everything in you trying to not accept that that could have been, been it could have happened or? Oh yeah, every, every fiber of my being was trying to believe my dad's story because I wanted, I wanted the truth not to be true. <laughs> I, I wanted my gut to be wrong. I, I, I had already lost my mother. I had already lost my home and every worldly possession. I mean, literally we had, I had the, I, the clothes on my back was all I had. And the clothes on my back were um, school, a school practice Jersey. And your father did that to you too. Yeah. And when you say that you wanted the truth not to be true, well, does that sum up your childhood? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, I, I think everybody to some degree lives in that world when you live in domestic violence, because as long, the longer you stay in it, the more you have to talk yourself into staying. For me, when I look back on it, the longer I stayed in it, I would think it, it, it was an alternate reality. Like it was normalized. Especially as a child, at first you think, well, this is just normal. You don't know any different. You have no clue that, that your family is any different than anybody else's family. And can I just ask you, sorry, but I just want to clarify. So from the time you were born, is it, did it get worse because his drinking was worse or right from the get-go, he was a violent individual who hurt your mother? Right from the get-go, he was a violent individual that hurt my mother and then his drinking got worse and his violence got worse okay so right so, from the, imagine you like you come into this world and that's all you knew yeah yeah my 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 parents got married in 1960 and I was born in 1970 and my sister was born in 1968 the wow. abuse started the first story that I talk about in the book happened six months after my parents were married 
And my dad, my mom was 25. Uh, she would have been turning 26 because this happened in May. Um, he drug her by the hair down a flight of stairs naked and dumped her in the gutter of the street and, and locked her out of the house. A relative told you this, right? My aunt. Your aunt told you. My and mom's did aunt, sister. Did your aunt tell you that she, she tried to talk to you rather than or? Well, what? my aunt is 12 years younger than my mother. So she was 13 at the time. So she only remembers her parents' reaction to the event and my mom calling and them going to pick her up. And, you know, through the 60s, my grandparents tried to get my dad counseling and therapy and help and all this. But, uh, what grandparents, you mean your father's parents or your mother's parents? No, my mother's parents. My, my, my father's father was just like him. That's how he became how he became. And did you have a relationship with your father's father? I did until um, he passed away when I was, let's see, was I um, third grade? And was he, did he mellow toward the end of his life or he wasn't that old when he died though, was he? He was old. He was born in the 1890s. Oh. Um, so, he, and he died in 78. So he was in his, he was in his early eighties. Oh, so was he a scary person for you when you were growing up, when you knew him? Not really. Um, not really, but I only, I, I, you know, we only went over there on weekends occasionally and, you know, holidays and stuff. And, um, he wasn't, he wasn't super scary. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he was a retired, uh, Detroit policeman, a world war one veteran and an orphan himself. So it goes back. Yeah. So it's generational trauma. And was your, was your grandmother beaten up by him? And did she ever yes. talk to you? About, did she ever talk to you about that? No, but uh, my my older cousins on my dad's side have told me a little bit about that. So that's how I know that my grandfather was like my father is through my cousins. So imagine, yeah, because when I the violence started, you know, for me when I when I guess when I got married, which is only a few months after we met, but. So your mother was right, right as after she was married, it was, it was horrible, horrible. Yeah. And, and, and he murdered her a month shy of their 25th wedding anniversary. So it was 25 years of, of this. So I'm, you can relate to that. True. I was 29 years. So is, is your mother, would you describe her, was she, was she broken in any way? Like, I mean, all those years of being tormented and um terrorized did you looking back like what was her demeanor like um i think that um i definitely think that she was tired tired that's the word huh tired and i think that she had depression um because uh, a lot of times she um on the weekends would just crash and like um, sometimes not even get out of bed on a Saturday, you know? Um, and I think it was just from the, the compounding stress of stress, it all. Yeah. 
And then he would call her the most horrible things in front of you. Like he called her right in front of you. Oh, I kept it mild for the book. Really? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. He, um, my mom's brother, um, he hated, and I didn't realize until later why he hated my uncle. My uncle was gay, living as a gay man in Manhattan and happy. And my dad was gay and jealous. Oh, that's right. Your dad, because you, you, that's right. It's a revelation toward the end about that that came out. You know, it's interesting, like the fact that your his father was this, like war veteran. Imagine if he had known that his son was gay, like what your father, the secrets again, what your father must have been hiding to be right. accepted by his own father, right? It's all about secrets, isn't it? It's all about just a lie, like living a lie. I, I came to the conclusion that um, it's hard to pinpoint where the accountability begins because I can look at my dad now objectively and say, okay, he was a gay man that lived in a time where it wasn't okay to be gay. So he put on this facade of a, a man marriage, which he always, every time my parents got into a fight, my dad um, claimed <laughs> That my mother tricked him. Right, right, right. Yeah. And that my uncle Tom signed the marriage certificate, not him. Oh, wow. He would call her, a you know, and it's like you're, 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 you're saying this in front of your daughters. You know, you were little at the time when he started. And, yes. And, and, and it just was like, you know, in the movie, um, uh, a Christmas story, how he says a tapestry of profanity blanketed uh, Lake Michigan. That's what uh, I felt like all the time. It was just this tapestry of profanity. <laughs> yeah. My ex, when he would get on a tirade, it would be, I, it just felt like, like the exorcist, like it would be like, it would just be coming out like all right. He must've been all rotten inside for, for those things to come out that he was saying, which were so just rotten. And, and the facade though, was he, was he a charming man? He was a good looking guy. And um, my mother was beautiful. The pictures are postcards. Literally, we, my parents would go to events, a wedding. The dance floor would clear so my parents could ballroom dance and everybody watch because they were so engaging on the dance floor. And then my dad would try to pull me and my sister in to, to dance with them. Like, and we, I used to hide under a table because I was so embarrassed to do it. And it was like, this is not even, not even right. <laughs> is it because you knew what the reality was? Is that why you didn't want to do it? I think it was a combination of, I knew it was a show and I was shy. So, and you know, and he didn't care that I was shy, <laughs> you know, and he would do, he would do little cruel thing. Well, I talk about in the book, how he, he sent me back to the burned out house to go get groceries. Oh well, you know, what's scary about the burned out house to get groceries is I was already afraid to go in the basement of that house because since the time I was three years old, every time my sister and I would be playing in the basement, my dad would think it would be funny to shut off the lights and turn the fire or the burglar alarm on and scare us to the point that we would run up the stairs because we were petrified. And so now he's sending me to the burned out shell 
to the basement to get green beans to a murder scene. Well, he's a sadist. Yeah. And also he's a sadist. And do you think like with domestic abusers, that's pretty, I think pretty standard or narcissists anyway, is they, they don't know you and they don't, like, would you say your father never, never even knew you or cared to know you? I've come to that conclusion. Yes. He, he never really knew me. And I mourned the loss of the father I wanted to have. I had to, I had to mourn that loss. Your daughter's going to, and your son are going to have to mourn that same loss. Yeah. My daughter has talked about that with me about how that's a really hard one to accept that you, that your father is not who you, who you want him to be or that you don't have one really. What, what right. do you have when it comes down to it? Yeah, nothing, nothing. It, it's, um, and, the, and that's a really hard thing to, um, to come to terms with, uh, it was for me anyway, was that I had to give up the fantasy that I had in my head for a father-daughter relationship that I, that I wanted that I never had and so I'll even, never have. Even after, when you were living with him after he was charged with murder, did you still to some degree feel that you could have still had a father that it was possible to have a relationship with him or? I still had a relationship with him after he went to prison. The fire happened in October. In February, we came home from school one night and he wasn't home and he had, he had been arrested. And, and the next day we had to bail him out. Well, we didn't have access to his money and we, we didn't have the right access to our money. <laughs> and so um, his lawyer talked him into putting his name on our accounts and our names on his account which at the time you're thinking, okay, he's our dad. Next thing you know, my dad stole my college money and my sister's college money to buy the condo that we were living in. I'm still talking to my dad, even after he cut me off financially. You mean talking, like calling him at the prison or visiting well, him? Well, he, he would have to call me collect, or if I came to Michigan, I would visit him. Well, August came around and... I had moved and see, he only could call me collect. And I had come home one afternoon and I had to move abruptly. And um, I it was only a month before I started the fall semester. So I had moved into temporary housing and I didn't have a phone number. And by the time I, I got settled, it was the end of September by the time I'm writing him to tell him all this. So I didn't talk to him from July to the end of September. Well, in August, my sister and I had gotten our own attorney to try to fight for my mom's half of the estate because there was a life insurance policy that was paid out. Yeah, who else should get it? But the two of you. Um, and there, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of assets. And so he got pissed at my sister that we got our own attorney and he hung up on her. So um, I, I find out about this because obviously I'm talking to my sister regularly. So I, I send him a letter at the end of September saying, hey, dad, here's my, I'm in school. I, I'm sorry. This is what happened. I had to move, blah, 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 blah. Here's my number. I don't hear from him and I don't hear from him and I don't hear from him. And I'm thinking, well, is he mad at me because he got in a fight with Lisa? And so at this point, I'm still churning because I'm like, I want to know what the hell did you do to mom? 
And so, oh, you want, you still wanted the answers. Yes. So in November of that year, which is now my sophomore year at college, I write him a letter and I say, dad, I know you did this and I can forgive you. I just need you to tell me what happened so I can have some closure so I can get past this. Okay. Well, <laughs> next thing you know, I go home at Christmas and it's the first time I come home and I don't go see him in jail. I come home uh, after Christmas and I had a letter from him and um, he obviously hadn't gotten the letter I wrote in September. So now he's only got this note where I'm saying, I know you're a murderer. I just want you to tell me, <laughs> right? And so now I'm feeling guilty and apologetic because I've been manipulated by this man my whole life. I'm still codependent. I'm, I'm still, I have a trauma bond. And um, so I write him this letter, dad, I'm so sorry. Um, this is what must have happened, blah, 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 blah. I love you, blah, 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 blah. I just pouring my soul out to apologize for offending him. And the letter I got back from him is, if it's money you want, I have none. Blah, 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 blah. It wasn't That's, about funny at all. It's nothing to do with money. No. And so, um, and then that's the one he ended with betrayed. And did he cut? So he stopped talking to you basically? Yeah. And I stopped talking to him after that. I just didn't respond to the betrayed note. And then um, uh, several years passed. I graduated. I got, came back, had my dream job. I, um, I was at a place where I didn't think I needed him anymore as a support, but I wanted this relationship. So I started having like this internal drive around March of 97, uh, February, March of 97 to, um, to get back in touch with him. And, um, basically, uh, he was in the process of dying and writing me and Lisa out of the will at that point, I never reconnected with him. Wow. So you, you still wanted to though. I did. So, so you, you didn't come on your own to a time when you cut him off in emotionally and realize that he's never gonna be the father that, you know, you wanted or whatever. Did you ever get to that point? I had to do that. I, I did it partially after the betrayed letter for a period of time, but I never let go of the hope of possibly having some sort of relationship with my dad that could be something. Yeah. Uh, it was after his death that I had to come to terms with all that. So I essentially lost both my parents tragically. Yeah. Do you remember any Christmases with, with your family? What were Christmases like? Oh, my mom made Christmas magical. We had a big circular staircase that came down into our living room. We would have to get all dressed up in our, our new pajamas and take pictures on the stairs coming down and, you know, a uh, big breakfast and yeah. So Christmas was always a good time. And any presents that you remember getting from her in particular? Um, well, my favorite, well, I got a, I, we always had one big present a year. And um, 
when I was in the sixth grade, I started drafting and I loved it. And that's how I ended up being an engineer is I loved drafting. And so this, the, the Christmas before my mom died, I got a drafting table and um, I still have that drafting table. It's smoke stained and, and whatnot, but I still have that drafting table. Is there anything else that you'd like to include in our radio show conversation? I guess the, the thing that I, um, the thing that I think is most important is, is that people know that there's people out here that care and that, um, and that you can get through tough things. And, um, you know, there is hope. I stopped asking the question of why, because that keeps you in this, this circle of self-pity. <laughs> and I started asking the question, what and how? What is it I should be learning and how can I use that knowledge to help myself and others? Because now I'm here and I can help somebody else, right? And it's because I've done the work that I've needed to to get to a place where I'm thriving. One of the things for me that was a big deal that um, was, what's the first thing that everyone asks you when you're a teenager and you're going to meet new people at school? Tell me about your family. Well, you know, that's a very hard question. That was a very hard question for me to answer because I either felt shame or guilt. I was ashamed if I told the truth and I felt guilt if I said, well, my mom died in a house fire and my dad retired from Ford. I, when I said that, I felt like I wasn't being honest. So, um, so I had this, you know, every, every social situation where I was meeting new people was cumbersome and hard. And I even felt like the same thing dating that no one would want me because of the baggage. You have a lot of shame that you have to process that, you know, this violent person that is your parent doesn't mean that you're a violent person and a narcissist. But I had to learn that that's his business. I, I, I have my own person. I am my own person. I, just because he is who he is doesn't, it has no reflection on me. And does it, does it help you to talk about it? Do you feel like it's healing for you? It's absolutely healing for me. I, I, I told you um, yesterday that I, about three years ago, I, I joined a bunch of Facebook groups for mm -hmm. all sorts of different trauma. And I did it 100% with the intention that I was going to be there to support others. Well, I have found now that I am getting so much, um, I guess, feedback uh, that I feel like there's finally purpose in my pain. It's, it's given me purpose in all of this. Thank you, Shelley. You can pre-order Shelley's book, Beautiful Ashes, on her website, beautifulashesmemoir.com. This book will be featured on the Finding Our Voices online monthly book club 
and Shelly is coming on as a guest. You can sign up for that by getting in touch with me, Patricia McLean, at hello at findingourvoices.net. And if what we are talking about today sounds familiar, if someone in your life is controlling you and making you afraid, say something. Trained domestic abuse victim advocates who believe you and understand it are available anytime, day or night, by calling the main domestic abuse hotline at 1-866-834-HELP. Visit our website at findingourvoices.net to see the faces and hear the voices of 40 women main survivors of domestic abuse aged 18 to 81. And you can connect with me at hello at findingourvoices.net if you want to join our network of survivor warriors. Wishing everyone a holiday filled with peace and harmony and joy, all of which are possible when you escape domestic abuse. And until next time, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long, hard road. Finally, I am feeling sure of what I know. I try to